Hello, this is Andy Thompson, Senior Editor of Private Debt Investor, a title by PEI Group that follows all the emerging trends and key developments in the private debt asset class. It's now been 10 years since we launched our first magazine, and today we're launching our own podcast. In the Private Debt Investor podcast, our team of reporters and analysts will be sharing their own deep insights, as well as speaking to many of the asset class's most prominent individuals on topics like deal origination and execution, fundraising, regulation, technological innovation, sustainability, and all things private credit. To kick off the new channel, we thought we'd take a six-part look at the past decade of private debt with some of the industry's leaders and key players, exploring the challenges, triumphs, and evolving dynamics that have defined the asset class. For the first episode, I sat down with Mike Arrighetti, the CEO, co-founder, and president of Aris Management. He discusses a decade of strategic growth in private credit, emphasising the importance of enduring relationships and the misunderstood yet resilient nature of the market. We'll play that episode for you today right here on Spotlight. And if you want to hear the rest of the six-part mini-series with other major figures in the industry, you can do that right now by heading to privatedebtinvestor.com forward slash podcast, or you can click that link in the description. You can even search and subscribe to the Private Debt Investor podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. That again is the Private Debt Investor podcast. Thanks for subscribing. And here's my conversation with Mike. So I'll come on to ask you about some of the current things that are going on, maybe a little peek into the future as well. But first thing I wanted to do was maybe turn the clock back a little bit. Please, can you? (laughs) (laughs) If only I had that power. I was thinking as I was kind of strolling over to the office here, I was thinking that I joined Private Debt Investor around about kind of seven years ago. And um, at the time that I joined PDI, I was, of course, aware of Ares. I'd covered private equity, so I was aware of the private equity activity. And I know there's a range of activities within the firm and that it was very much on the radar. But I think it was only really when I started covering private debt that I suddenly became aware of just how big Ares already was in private debt. So it may be that, you know, there's gaps in in my knowledge of the history. It may be that some of our readers have some gaps in their knowledge of Ares history as well. So I wondered if you could sort of talk us through a little bit the early history and how Ares did grow up so quickly into such a big brand in private debt. Did it happen? Was it very, very deliberate? In some ways, did it happen almost by accident? A little bit of both, actually. And I think that's kind of the way that life typically goes is, you know, the the best laid plans. But we were very intentional in thinking about how we wanted the business to grow and what we thought the opportunity set was. But then obviously you have to get lucky too, and you have to have the markets cooperate. And and so I think it was a combination, but maybe going back to the the history you know, Ares was actually founded in 1997 within Apollo, and it was effectively building a liquid credit business within Apollo. And for the first five years or so of the firm, it was largely focused on managing a handful of CLOs, about 2 to $3 billion of assets, 50 or so people in Beverly Hills, and a great brand. And interestingly, at the time, I and my current partners were managing a pretty meaningful, what is now private credit business within the Royal Bank of Canada. And we spun out of the bank in 2003, uh, largely because we effectively overwhelmed the balance sheet capacity, which is crazy when you think about it, of RBC to do the types of loans that our clients were looking for from us in terms of middle market senior and and mes lending. And so 
part of the story here, and, and it's why we still have such a great relationship with the folks over at RBC, they spun us out and effectively were our single LP in what was going to be a new middle market lending platform in 2003. And they were paying us fee for service to manage the balance sheet that we'd put together for them. And roughly around the same time, if folks remember, there was this huge flurry of activity around BDCs. And people were looking at the opportunity in the public markets to raise BDCs as a path to investing in private credit. And no less than a couple of months after myself, Kip DeVere, who now runs our credit business, Michael Smith, who is one of the co-heads of credit, had branched on our own, did we get a call from Bennett Rosenthal, one of our very close friends and clients at Aries, and said, hey, there's this huge amount of activity going on in the BDC landscape. We have a great credit you know, track record and DNA, but we're not really scaled in private credit should we join forces and spent a a fair amount of time thinking through what that would look like and ultimately decided that we would. So we took the roughly dozen people that we had in what was then aptly named MKM Investors, which was shows just how creative we are in branding, and we kind of mushed it into Aries. And I, and I only go back to that moment because it was probably the biggest part of the origin story for what Aries is today, right? Which was we're now making a meaningful push into private credit, and that private credit business is growing alongside a newly raised, you know, roughly billion dollar private equity fund and a liquid credit business. And then we approached the Canadians about buying the portfolio that we were managing for them. Uh, and again, they were incredibly supportive. They sold us that portfolio. We took it public into what is now ARCC. But maybe to, to put a, a finer point on it, we raised $165 million of equity and we levered it to $225 million 20 years ago. And that fund is now, you know, $21 billion of assets and, you know, continues to grow. And and obviously a lot has happened to get us from that point to this point. But that was really the kind of the first moment, I think, when we, you know, we saw the, the modern Aries, you know, come to fruition there. Yeah, absolutely. That's quite some growth. Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned 20, 20 years ago, of course, we're, we're looking back over the last 10 years, we had our anniversary uh, issue this year, 10 years of BDI. When you look, I mean, maybe you could sort of maybe bring us up to 2013, hard to keep track of the timelines, <laughs> maybe bring us up to 2013 and then maybe reflect a little bit on the last decade and what that's brought both for ours as a firm and for the market as a whole. Yeah. Uh, I guess that's a big question. No, right? it's a great it's a great it's a great question. It's always good to frame it. It's funny. I, I sometimes fall into the trap of there was things that happened in the past, we're in the present, and then there's things that are going to happen in the future. So I, I tend to lump it all together, but it is good to try to segment it. I guess maybe before we talk about the last 10 years, just in terms of the origin in the early days, because I think it's important in terms of how we got to where we are today and some of the big seminal changes in the market. I think what we did differently or what we understood because we were coming at it from the bank perspective, whereas I think a lot of other folks who are now showing interest in, in private credit were coming at it from the either private equity or capital markets perspective. But I think our team at that point in time had a very unique set of experiences having worked in banks delivering this type of product. And when you go back and think about this RBC transition, we had the opportunity to see just how difficult it was to do this business within the banks, I think, earlier than others did. And so when we started to institutionalize the business, 
we had a focus on origination in a way that very few people did. I remember our partners at Aries in the early days didn't quite understand why we were getting on planes and flying all over the country, you know, looking for loans because, you know, candidly, they were used to sitting on a trading desk and getting calls for things to buy. So there was there was actually a difference, you know, in the approach of how to go out and source the business. And and I, I only go back there because that is still the biggest competitive advantage I think that we have is just those deep entrenched relationships that were built over decades in these local markets and different products. But if I go back to 2013, actually a really, really interesting moment for us because we enjoyed really, really strong scale and and I think differentiated growth going into the GFC. But prior to the GFC, I don't know if anybody really understood what private credit was. You know, you even mentioned in your own experience, you know, you were private credit aware, but not necessarily, you know, understanding of exactly what was going on behind the scenes. But I think post GFC, anytime you go through a moment of illiquidity, we're going through one right now, I think the private markets really turn on and you begin to see new markets open up and new opportunities, you know, come to light. And I think 2013, we were still in the aftershock of the GFC. We were going through what I would call the second phase of growth within our private credit business. Uh, We had just bought Allied Capital in 2010. You know, we were scaling a Unitronche partnership with GE Capital that proved to be a pretty meaningful innovation in, in the private credit space. And we were beginning to see scale in a way that we, at least up to that point, didn't, didn't know existed in our market, right? So you say how much was luck and how much was foresight. I think we understood the market needed the product and that we would grow as the private markets generally grew. But it wasn't really until that 10, 11, 12 post GFC that we began to see, you know, the size of the market really come together for us. And so, you know, I guess looking back 10 years, that was an inflection point for us clearly post the Allied merger, but I think probably an inflection point for the industry too. Yeah, actually one one question that comes to mind is, you know, a lot of people kind of say private credit has had these really strong tailwinds. And it's kind of become almost a bit of a trope for people to say, well, you know, the, the asset class never really got tested. You know, I think when COVID came along, people said, well, this could be, the, you know, the first big test. And then it maybe was a test for a while and then it kind of dissipated somewhat. And now, obviously, we will come on to talk about uh, the, the current market and the challenges that that presents. But, you know, when people look back and say, oh, well, you know, private debt had these great tailwinds. Be interested to hear your thoughts on that, because obviously you flourished through that period. But I'm thinking nothing ever happens with your feet up, sat on a sofa. This, this, this I'm, I'm sure there were challenges for you along the way. But I, I'm just interested to hear how you perceive that period following the crisis and, and seeing through this amazing growth. You know, the one thing that I think is lost in this, you call it a trope. I actually think that's aptly put. You know, private credit, as most people are talking about it these days, is really, you know, private credit, but private credit that is lending money to a private equity firm or an institutional owner of real estate or infrastructure. And so you really can't talk about risk in private credit without talking about risk in private equity or risk in private real estate credit without talking about risk in real estate equity. And so it's always been fascinating to me, having done this for as long as I've been doing it and having been through, you know, long-term capital, the Asian debt crisis, the dot-com, GFC, COVID, taper tantrum. It's, 
we've been about as tested as I think as any asset class has been, and the performance has been incredibly durable. And I think the reason that the performance has been incredibly durable is because it sits largely at the top of a capital structure with a lot of you know, institutional equity support. And I think that the, the importance of the strength of relationship with the sponsor community and the equity owners of companies and assets, I think is fundamentally misunderstood, right? I think anytime you see growth in a market like we've seen, you know, the, the narrative is, oh, there's risk being taken there that's inappropriate. And it's just, you know, something bad is going to happen. And I always push back pretty hard. I'm like, well, if we're going to be losing money in our private credit portfolio, that means that you've blown through $2.8 trillion of private equity that's sitting in the ground today. And it's not to say that there's not some risk in the private equity market, you know, writ large, but it, it, it's not like we call people and say, hey, I'd like to give you $500 million that you don't need. I'm just going to wire you the check and, you know, call me when you want to pay it back, right? There, there's a real, you know, institutional demand for this product and it's heavily negotiated heavily structured. And, you know, so it, it is a funny thing to call it a trope because that's the way I experience it now, 30 years in the business and even 10 years since we had that big inflection point that even with all of the evidence to the contrary, I just still think it's terribly misunderstood. By the way, that's probably why it's still an opportunity for us too, right? Because that misperception in some ways is what creates the return opportunity. So get, maybe give us one or two of your highlights from the last few years, well, you go back 10 years if you like, but from recent history, shall we say, because, you know, this has been a period where, you know, another thing that people say a lot is the larger managers are accounting for more and more of the investor capital. There, there's a group of blue chip names that's emerged in the asset class. You've obviously been right up there in that bracket. So could you give us a little bit of a sense of how the firms evolved during this recent period? And it, it seems like, again, it's been a rapid evolution because it's been a period where so much capital has come into the asset class and the investor base has widened, deal sizes have got larger, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I, maybe let, I'm going to try to frame this in the confluence of forces that's creating the growth opportunity and then love to touch on some highlights because we've had you know some really, really pivotal moments here in our own evolution. But again, back to the misunderstanding. If you really think about what has happened here over the last 10 years, you, you had significant bank consolidation happening in the US market throughout the late 80s and, and 90s. And so by the time you got to 2000, the decade leading up to the financial crisis, most of the middle market capacity within the banking system had kind of consolidated out. And that's when you saw the growth in the loan and high yield markets and the proliferation of the CLO market as kind of the easiest uh, or most efficient path to execution. But as those markets were getting larger and as the bank balance sheets were getting larger, those markets were moving to scale as well. And then fast forward to the GFC in the last decade, a gap emerged in the market, right, where the small to mid-market borrower wasn't quite large enough to get into those liquid markets. They weren't quite large enough to get the attention of the now, you know, five consolidated banks. And the regulatory capital framework didn't make it really economic for these loans to be held on bank balance sheets. But the reason that we were able to grow is that the investors finally understood that there was an opportunity to invest in this asset class. So 
you know, even 10 years ago when we were talking to investors about private credit, even if they saw the return opportunity as attractive, they weren't really structurally set up to buy it because the structure of the markets was still very heavily geared towards private equity and public equity or 60-40 portfolios. And so there frankly wasn't anywhere in a lot of these firms to buy private credit. So you had to go through this other phase where the institutional investor community restructured to be able to look at private credit as a meaningful alternative to traditional fixed income. And once that happened, that's when you saw all the capital flow in. But the thing to, to remember, because you just said we have a lot of new investors, which we do, these are the same investors that were buying private placements and leverage loans and high yield the same way that they're buying private credit. It's the same insurance companies. It's the same pension funds, right? So again, we're not creating new credit in the absence of demand for credit the same way we're not really creating new investors. But what we've done, I think, is bring a level of creativity and flexibility into a market that desperately needed it. And now we're actually delivering a better value proposition to our borrowers, our clients, and we're delivering just a more flexible exciting return to our clients. And that's kind of what's happening now. In terms of our business, you know, I think the Allied acquisition was a seminal moment, followed closely by the acquisition of American Capital Strategies, two of the largest BDCs at the time. And I think that, you know, demonstrated that the market did have the capacity to get through periods of difficulty and that there was an opportunity to consolidate share and drive scale. I think for us, probably the second most important move that we made was the move into Europe early. So we launched our private credit business early in Europe in 2007, when people weren't really talking about private credit there. And I remember going out and doing due diligence, you know, all across Europe and, and trying to figure out whether there was an opportunity there. And, you know, the idea that people would borrow outside of the banking system was crazy at the time, as, as silly as that may sound. But post-GFC, that changed very quickly. So I think, again, we saw the opportunity, but the financial crisis really accelerated that opportunity for us. And now we have one of the largest you know, teams and portfolios and market shares in that market as well. And I'd say probably the third most important thing that happened for us was an understanding, and I think this is really the future, that private credit doesn't just mean making loans to private equity sponsors, right? It, it means self-originating creative solutions to owners of companies and assets, and it can span high-grade exposures to structured equity and debt exposures all over the globe, you know, in every, every economy and every market, in real assets and corporates. And when you start to think about it that way, that's when you start to understand just how massive these addressable markets are. And I think about, you know, the consolidation that's happening now even in the alternative credit space. And I think that is going to be, you know, one of these aha moments for the market when they see how important the private credit market is to, you know, the, the growth of the alternative credit space, particularly in light of what's going on with the banking system right now. Yeah, thanks, Mike. And really fascinating stuff. And uh, I mean, you know, just to bring us up to the present day, really, and obviously, I'm very keen to get your take on current market circumstances. You know, you mentioned the way that borrowers have become accustomed to private debt and recognize what it can bring to them. 
Um, you mentioned also the sort of broadening applicability of the product. Uh, we've seen it applied to different situations and be have that ability to be very flexible. A lot of people these days are talking about, you know, the current vintage, the opportunity that there is, and the way that economic circumstances have gone may have worked against certain asset classes. In some respects, it's worked with private debt. But, you know, balancing it up sort of on the other side of the scales, you know, you've got, uh, you know, a tough fundraising climate, you've got people talking about increasing pressures on portfolio companies, you've got arguably a bit more kind of regulatory scrutiny, whether that's necessarily targeted at the, the right things or not, but, you know, it's there. So, you know, it's kind of a, an interesting situation I think we're in at the moment in the market. What's what? may, may you May you live in interesting times, right? I, I, I mean, <laughs> exactly. Back to the prior comment that you made just about you know, the history and not being tested. I, th I think the asset class has been tested and it continues to shine. And I don't think that this is going to be any different. When you think about private credit, just as flexible liquidity in a market that desperately needs it now more than ever, you know, our teams are slower doing new deals just because transaction volume is low. But, you know, as I said earlier, there's $2.8 trillion of private equity in the ground that is now going to have to deal with the, you know, countervailing issues of coming to the end of fund life, having a slow transaction market and the inability to exit at the value that they originally anticipated. You know, they're trying to navigate returning capital to their LPs so that they can go out and raise the next fund. And that's going to require private credit. Right, someone is going to have to come in and put liquidity into these businesses in order to extend duration and put everybody on a path to ultimately, you know, realizing the full value of the enterprise. And it, what's so interesting about what we're seeing now is it's about as good of a time as we've seen from a risk return standpoint. Right. So if you look at what are we generating in terms of the spread per unit of leverage that we're taking, it's never been better. And that's a combination of the base rate environment we're in, but also the fact that you have incredibly high quality companies, assets, and sponsors that just, you know, need liquidity because rates have gone up, you know, really fast. Uh, and the capital structures that they put on their, their enterprises just weren't designed for 5.5% base rates. So the, the fascinating thing about the conversations now is in prior cycles, when we were dealing with stress or negotiations with counterparties, it was always on their weakest assets, right? And now we're actually having conversations with people on their best assets because the whole game here is how do I actually make sure that I can own these highest quality assets longer because that's where the most value creation is going to be. So it's actually a wonderful time to be in the business. And I think that it's going to, you know, it's going to continue to be so for the next couple of years. Great. Well, that's, that's very positive. That makes me feel good to hear that. Um. <laughs> well, I remember, Andy, it's funny. I think you and I spoke at one of your conferences probably five or six years ago, and the nature of the questions was just all about structural weakness within credit documents and whether or not those documents would get tested and what we'd see. And, you know, and I think I made probably, as I, I often do, made some cheeky comment about, well, I guess we'll find out. And, you know, here we are. And guess what? They worked. Right. So there's a lot of anxiety that always ripples through the markets. And I think, you know, the reason that people are focusing more on private markets generally and private credit is it takes a lot of the anxiety out. Right. It, at the end of the day, when you're navigating a company through distress, 
if it's a bilateral negotiation with two counterparties, an equity owner and a debt holder, you're going to get through it, right? You're going to kind of navigate through in a way that gets the best outcome for all of the stakeholders, where I think when you're in the liquid markets, you're just dealing with a level of volatility and things that are outside of your control that just make it really hard to navigate. And so one of the reasons why I think you know, we continue to grow disproportionately in down markets is I think people do see the value prop of patient private capital. Again, I, I think that this next couple of years is going to be a big inflection point because people are going to realize just how important the private markets are to bringing stability to the liquid markets and just how you know, quality the partnerships are when you think about you know, working some of these situations out. Yeah, I, I guess this question will sound a bit counterintuitive because there is obviously a lot to be positive about. But, uh, you know, in a spirit of sort of making sure that standards are kind of maintained, <laughs> do you think there's something that private debt maybe could have done better that it hasn't been so good at today? And do you think there's something that the asset class really needs to focus on in the years to come? make sure that it's on top of it, whatever that may be. That's all very hypothetical, of course. Yeah, it's a great question. I don't, I think, you know, someone asked, I was talking to an investor earlier today, just asking about private credit and competitive behavior and, you know, capital flowing into the market. And, and the reality is that the competition in the market has largely been the same as long as we've been in the business, right? Maybe maybe the name on the door has changed. Maybe the funds are bigger. But the players who have been in this space a long time are still the players that are in this space. And as you highlighted earlier, the larger players continue to get larger, I think, for obvious reasons and, and the value of scale in this business. But when you look at the market generally, I don't think that there's been bad behavior. You know, I think that from time to time, you'll see some new entrant come in that, you know, maybe takes a little bit more risk than somebody else would. But it's been a very disciplined, you know, frankly, collaborative market for as long as we've been in business. And I, I'm seeing that still to this day. And for all of the growth and capital that's flowed in, I still think that the private credit market is undercapitalized relative to you know, the borrower demand for credit. You know, if you just look at private equity, you know, as a proxy for global private credit, private credit dry powder today is about 20% of private equity dry powder. So in the absence of a functioning high yield and loan market and shrinking bank balance sheets, that tells you that, you know, we're still going to see meaningful growth in private credit just to satisfy the amount of private equity that's already been raised that needs to get deployed without thinking about all of the other, you know, secular tailwinds that we touched on. So I don't know if there's anything they, that we could have done better. Uh, I actually think that everyone's been well behaved and it's a really collegial, collaborative industry. And, you know, I think generally people are taking good risk and, you know, being good stewards. Excellent. Well, the final question for you then, Mike, it's, it's been great to hear from you. Very insightful. I, I, I haven't noticed any cheeky comments this time. I'll, I'll take, I'll take your word. <laughs> well, how much, how much time do we have left? <laughs> I'll try to, I'll try to slip one in. Here we go. Maybe in this last question, uh, which is probably a cheeky question, but, uh, yeah. So a new junior recruit walks through the door today at Arrows, new hire, entire career ahead of them, taking their first tentative steps into private debt. What would be that piece of advice you'd give them? I tend to give people the same advice regardless of what part of the business they're in, which is probably around two or three things. One is I, this is a relationship business, both internally and externally. And I think that 
the acquisition of skills in this business is a big part of you know your life as a junior person, but the quote-unquote acquisition of relationships ultimately is what drives your career. And I think I've been fortunate going back to the foundation of Aries. I've been working with my best friends for almost 30 years now. And I think that strength of friendship and partnership pervades the culture here. And so, you know, the first advice is build enduring relationships internally and externally, because ultimately it's not what you do, it's who you do it with that is going to drive your career. And I think a lot of young folks are always just focused on, you know, what skills do I need to do? What training do I need in order to get promoted? And I think they're missing the big, you know, the bigger picture of just, you know, surrounding yourself with talented people that are going to make you better and, you know, really root for you. And then I think maybe two is just preaching patience. I often find that, you know, the most talented folks also sometimes can be the least patient. It's funny. I, I always like we're, we're reflecting on the last 10 years, but it goes by in the blink of an eye. And I, I've always found that for the people that put the work in, have the drive and, and the ambition that it all generally works out. It may not work out on the timing that you want it to, but nothing ever really does. And I just try to make sure that people understand, again, this is a long, <laughs> as we're talking about today, it is a long road uh, and it's a really fun journey and you don't want to rush it. And I think, you know, people make bad decisions in their career when they get impatient. So I often try to just have people enjoy the ride. Great. Well, that sounds like a, a good note to end on. So, and I'm sure it's been a great ride for you, Mike. We've had, we've had a blast. Thanks, Andy. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That again was our CEO, Mike Arrighetti. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to head to privatedebtinvestor.com forward slash podcast, or you can click that link in the description, or you can search for the Private Debt Investor podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. There you'll get the rest of this six episode mini series and continue to get industry leading insights into the world of private debt afterwards. In our next episode, I'll speak with Paul Bedell, CEO and co-founder of LCM Partners, to discuss his reflections on the past decade. I'm Andy Thompson, and special thanks to Mina Tumai for her production work on this series. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.